Father, your greatness is displayed in so many big ways through the course of the moon and the course of the sun and the stars and the heavens. And as sure as they'll be there tonight when the sun goes down and we'll see them, we'll know that you're faithful. Uh, You don't change. You keep your word. And these are reminders of your predictability, your dependability, your faithfulness. But we thank you that your faithfulness is more than just big and cosmic, but personal and ours. And you've gathered us this morning because you're faithful and you're keeping your promises to us and Jesus because you're faithful. You've sent us to the end of the earth in order to do good on your faithfulness and your promises. The gospel has reached us and we go to the ends of the earth with it. Father, we gather now and we sit under your word in order that we might believe more firmly that you are faithful and be faithful ourselves to your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated and take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis. If you're new with us and don't have a a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Just come see me after the service or any of our leaders at one of our welcome desks at our main entrances. Uh, There's one provided for you. It's right within arm's reach. It's the black book there, and it would be page 32. Before we read, just a quick personal update and a projection for the next few weeks. And the Lord's kindness, you'll know, many of you will know that uh, my wife is pregnant, um, and so she usually sits in the back, and, um, and, and the 19th of November, we've got a scheduled C-section, and so you can be in prayer for our little baby boy. Um, there have been, it's been a, a somewhat delicate pregnancy, there are more delicate pregnancies, um, but the Lord has been kind to provide for us and strengthen us uh, in large part, largely through your care. We've had ladies holding the baby uh, mid-morning so Christy can get sleep because we've got another infant, and uh, we've had a number of meals, and we just feel like we're on the right side of so much kindness, and we pray that you know that kindness as well when, when you need it, so thank you, and uh, just a word about the 19th uh, with the, the scheduled date there. Um, in the next two weeks, uh, Abe Stratton will be preaching the word to us from the Gospel of John, and I'll let him tell you a little more about what that will entail next week when you're here. I'm eager to sit under the word as Abe preaches, as I know you are. Then we're going to pick up Genesis where we left off and just keep going. Genesis is a great book for the month of December. Sometimes we'll take a detour around the holidays, but if we don't have to, I don't want to, and I'm looking forward to getting back into this book and, uh, and continuing to truck along if that's... The, the way we would describe preaching uh, on Sunday morning, trucking along. Well, here we are in Genesis 38. Uh, on Saturdays, I go to bed early in our home, and, um, and the kids and I will read like a chapter uh, each night, and then on Saturday nights, I'll just tell them what chapter to read. It's the text for the next morning. And I sent them into their room, and I said, go ahead and read Genesis chapter 38. Y'all might want to kick me out of the church for that in a few minutes, But um, I had them do it, and they said there were some confusing things, and there were some sad things here, and there are. As we read today's chapter, consider the headlines that might hit your feed the following day. It's amazing to me the kinds of headlines that make their way into my view. Uh, Some things are so, so unusual, so terrible, so twisted, Um, that even if they happen in some rural corner of our United States or the world, they make it to national headlines. And I think there could be a few that we'd find here. But thank God that the first kinds of headlines that might come to mind as we read this are not the only headlines. 
not even the biggest headlines that would emerge from this very chapter. So read with ears open and hearts open and throughout the sermon with your your mind open as we, we go about this together. Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give up offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. And Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought, he thought she was a prostitute so she had covered her, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give to me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So she gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute? Who is it? And I am at the roadside. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. 
And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And we will hit pause right there. What will happen next? What will happen to Tamar? What is going on in Judah's mind? How will he respond to this request? This begins the Tamar story. It's an, inf- it's an infamous story. I've been asked throughout the Genesis series about uh, this story. Well, that's coming. <laughs> this chapter is coming. Some even know it as chapter 38. I didn't know it as chapter 38, but I've known it as chapter 38 for a little while now. Now you know it as chapter 38. It's an infamous story. It's tragic, but its biggest headline here is not tragic. The biggest headline here will change the way you look at the worst headlines of your own life, indeed, the world. Like so many news stories, we need to slow down and read carefully to get the full story. So let's do that together. Today's story will come to us in three parts. Two two dark paths, two surprising turns, and one great light. Two dark paths, two surprising turns, and one great light. Light. Verses 1 through 11, two dark paths. The first path is Judah's path. Verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah went down from, he went down from his brothers. In the last scene of chapter 37, Judah and his brothers deceived their father with an object identifying their brother, Joseph, a coat that belonged specifically to him. There's a goat involved, a stain with the blood of a goat. His father would not be consoled when he considered the death of his son, supposed death of his son. The chapter ends, of course, with Joseph. Remember the split screen? Far away, sold to the Egyptians, and now sold a couple levels up into Potiphar's home pretty close to the top of the world there in terms of power, not so far from the Pharaoh. And just as we want to know what's happened to Joseph, what's going to happen to Joseph? We get this story. It seems out of place. Some have suggested that it's an editorial hack, uh, like good and related material, perhaps helpful to know, but just shoved in here somewhere. You could pick up where we leave off in chapter 39 and not have thought anything was missing, but we have this sort of 20-year intermission here on a different character. But there are some linguistic and thematic ties back to chapter 37 and forward to 39 and 41. It's sitting here in a very particular way. I'll indicate these subtly at times as we go, but it's Actually, the interest of Moses' first readers to get the story on Judah, and this is a good place to get the story on Judah. Judah is the one who would be selected by the father and blessed and promised that the scepter would not depart from him. The kings, the king would come from Judah. Judah is an important character. He's not the main character in this whole section, but we do need the backstory on Judah, and it's here for a good reason, and we'll get it this morning. By the close of Genesis, he'll be heroic at a key point in relationship to his brothers. How does his story begin? It begins here as he goes down from his brothers. Judah went down from his brothers and he turned to 
a certain Adulamite, it says. Uh, Judah made pal with this guy, Hirai, like made a buddy. And he pitched his tent next to, next to his. They were going to spend a lot of good time together and have laughs and make some memories and, and who knows what. But it doesn't sound good. Friends, we ought to be friends with all kinds of people. If you have a friend named Hira, that's awesome. I've never met a Hira before. Friends with all kinds of people, even with strange ancient names. Good colleagues, we should have plenty. We should be good and well-known, worn-in neighbors. But we should not make home with those who don't recognize the Lord as king. That's different. And he's made home with Hira. Judah made himself at home in and with the world, settling where he did in the way that he did. Judah was the one who devised the plan to sell off his brother only a chapter before. So this this isn't terribly surprising. Once he's settled where he wants to be, he sees something that he wants to have. Verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He, he took her and he went into her. And we've seen this before. This kind of taking. This kind of taking comes from the human pride that is common to all of us. It was when Eve first took from the tree. The story of the Bible and the story of human history and the story of our lives is a story of taking what is not ours. And in this case, he saw and he took what was not his. Men, you have a role to play in this world before God, and it is a role of protector. It is not a role of predator. It is a role of giver. It is not a role of taker. Men, We are given our passions and, shall I say, our parts, not to take life, but to give life. Men, manhood is not using your strength to take. It is leveraging the strength that God has given you in order that you might give Men, we are always training in the direction of giving or of taking. Judah acted consistent with his personal training. How many times had he imagined this and played the real and practiced the act of taking? The sins of the eyes which seem private, the sins of looking on nakedness by proxy through a screen which can seem so private are not private sins. It's a terrible time to be a young man. Um, we're all great sinners, and, and men in particular have a, a, a temptation in this way that I'm speaking about. Young men are in a bad time with screens in the internet. Uh, and to an extent, we can have pity and compassion even as we help and encourage and strengthen and rebuke young men even as we older men need the same, all of it. Kids, expect and let your parents handle any devices they decide to give you. Let them set up parental controls and instruct you in their dangers. I expect that in the years to come, the stories of destruction and the lives of people will be traced back and already are to very young curiosity and then 
addiction. I'm calling it training. Parents don't assume the best. Assume a biblical view of humanity and sin. (laughs) Our kids are wonderful. We love them. God's made them in their image. He's given them as gifts to us. There's no reason to assume the best. And don't train them to assume the best of themselves. To the men especially, though, this is not only a male problem, of course. Let me offer a somewhat shocking illustration to help put pornography in, in its proper sort of emotional context, if I could. Imagine with me a, a way a different sin might work its way out. Imagine with me that there were some films available online for men and women, image bearers, films of image bearers of the living God, immoral, be, immortal beings being brutally murdered in cold blood. Brutally murdered. And imagine that watching these somehow was an acceptable and satisfying release for our own anger. I mean, better than punching someone in the face or actually murdering someone. When I'm really angry, why don't we just watch a video of somebody actually getting killed? Um, I mean, I suppose it'd be bad enough to watch an imaginary person getting killed in not real life, but... But could you could even imagine how disgusting it would be if we found secret, secret pleasure, secret venting, a secret outlet for our anger in viewing and watching and imagining actual human beings being killed with actual pictures and videos of human beings being killed. Would you call that a private sin? Would you, would you suggest that that sin would stay where it's at in the privacy of your own home? No, it's heart training. No, it's a great offense against the Lord. No, it's an offense against the dignity of that person, even if they don't know that you're doing it. It would transform the way you look at and engage other people, and if you let it really have you, it could well lead to those very acts themselves. But of course, we know from the Lord Jesus that even the act of indulging that secret, that secret venting of anger in this illustration would itself be a great sin, of course, Anger doesn't find satisfaction in that kind of a peculiar way, but lust does cry out for satisfaction in that kind of imaginary, kind of imaginary way. Friends, kids, everybody, uh, that's not okay. And um, what we see happen here on the page of our Bible is wonderfully difficult to see. Wonderfully difficult to see. It's... Um, it's difficult to see. It's, we need it. We need to see what sin does. We need to see how it is conceived and how it gives birth to, to death. And there is death on the page here. Judah was a young man. Excuse me. Judah, Judah saw a young woman and he took her and he went into her. Judah's path is brazen. His path is dark and it's brazen. It's marked by a rejection of his God in this. He's brazen toward women, and he's brazen toward women. This is key because he's brazen toward God. These things go together. Brazen toward his forefather's wisdom not to marry outside the people of God. Very Brazen in marrying a Canaanite woman. Brazen in his disregard for the promise of offspring to Abraham, which he just neglects and doesn't even pursue really in this story. And he's brazen in other ways in which we'll see. But all those sort of outworkings of brazenness and darkness ultimately go back to his relationship with his maker. He's not walking with God as Enoch walked with God, as Noah walked with God. 
And one of the beautiful things about Christianity and the gospel and following Jesus is he makes us the kind of people who can walk with God. And one of the, one of the ways where the power comes from to be a transformed person in, in the area of human sexuality is to, is to know God. And if you feel hopeless in your enslaved passions, follow that all the way back and it's just you walking with yourself. Walk with God. Look to him and that is your first step to freedom. And know that you are um, exhorted and warned and I pray uh, made to fear the Lord in this sermon and even in these words, but know that you're pitied as well by a fellow sinner. Uh, come out of the dark, come into the light, come to the Lord, walk, walk with God. Know God, and you can know freedom from these things. Judah was brazen toward women because he was brazen toward God. That's where the first path is led. It's Judah's path. It's a brazen path. It's a path he was blazing all by himself because he was out on, a, on his own. Well, the second path is a path of rejection as well, but it's not one of rejecting God, but of one who was herself rejected. It's a lonely path. It's Tamar's path. We see this from verses 6 through 11. This is the path she was put on. She's lonely in marriage on this path. She was given to Ur for marriage, but that didn't last very long. Um, All all we know about him isn't very good. We don't know exactly what what he had done. No doubt it followed from the whole composure and context of his life. Verse 7, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. The Lord put him to death. What she can do. What would a widow do in these circumstances? She's all alone now. Well, there are four general options. She, she could go back to her father's home. She could support herself. She could remarry. Or she could marry her brother-in-law. She could marry her brother-in-law. That last option was a legal provision in Israel. And the pagans even embraced it as a way of seeing to the welfare of a widow and the propagation of a man's line. A man died without children, and this was a way of honoring him and taking care of that matter and taking care of the wife at the same time. In a case such as Tamar's, the father may order a brother to marry his daughter-in-law for this purpose. The man could opt out. I mean, we can imagine this would be something where you want a little buy-in. But if he opted out, it would not be without shame. And the law even allowed the woman to spit in his face. It was not without public shame. Uh, Life was structured to care for and to see to the good of this kind of a woman in this kind of a situation. And it would be normal and honorable for the man, a brother-in-law, especially if the woman had no other obvious options to to marry her and to see that she had children. More specifically, to see that her deceased husband, his brother, had children. This is what Judah was directing Onan to do, but Onan only pretended to do this. He did not fulfill his responsibility. Why did he refuse? Why did he refuse? Well, we're told because he knew the son would not be his own heir. Well, what's the problem with that? Presumably, he wanted to be the next place in line. The firstborn is dead. I'm up. Unless Tamar has kids, in which case 
Her first son is actually the firstborn and takes the place and would receive the inheritance. Why didn't he just opt out then? Well, because he didn't want to bear the shame for doing so. He'd rather it be on her. How did the Lord look on this treatment of Tamar? A lonely widow already. How did the Lord look on this shameful act of neglecting one's own family? Verse 10. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us that we're to be considered worse than an unbeliever if we neglect the care of our own family, the provision for our family. Why? Because for all that Christians are commanded that may be out of step with the culture around us, this is one of the things that somebody without the word of God and who hasn't given themselves to Jesus Christ would understand full well. And it's something that our unbelieving neighbors do quite well. At least they esteem it as basic. This could be an encouragement to those of us who may feel down about our jobs or our situation in life or what we've accomplished, but are nevertheless married and providing and surrounded if God has been kind with children or children who have gone out and have been provided for. Let me just say, men, if you don't like your job and you feel like life and career hasn't led you to the place you desired, I can wish that it had. And and it's to pray to that end uh, for those of us who are early in our careers. But if you're providing for your family, that's honorable before the Lord, and that is plenty. And if that was harder because you haven't liked your job or you've had a particularly difficult situation in work, then the Lord looks on that too. And if you've been faithful to provide, then praise God for that. Be encouraged by that. That's something uh, of an example to others, even in our church, that is, is worth noting. In other words, don't let the culture's obsession with achievement and like having the job you love minimize this incredibly important task of taking care of family. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord And the Lord put him to death also because he didn't take care of his family. So take care of your family. And if you're taking care of your family, be encouraged. Know that the Lord honors that. He looks on it. She was lonely in her marriage. But now she's lonely in her widowhood. Judas Judas sealed this for her when he said, Remain a widow in your father's house Till Sheila, my son, grows up. The plan was not unreasonable. He was younger, and this would have been one of the ways of taking care of her. She would be considered betrothed, spoken for, and promised. But Judah's words and his intentions were not in a line. We get a little insight into his thoughts right here. Verse 11. Why did he tell her, go back to your father's house until Shelah grows up? For he feared that he would die like his brothers. He thought, (laughs) this is not a good dad. I mean, apparently the sons were so wicked that God is just taking them out like whack-a-mole. Gone. Gone. Uh, This is the first instance of just 
a personal execution. We don't get a ton of this in the Bible, but God will do it, and God does it. He did it here. Uh, and Judah thinks it's her. Like, there's something wrong with her. <laughs> like, married the first one, and now he's dead. And the second one, and now he's dead. I'm not giving Sheila to her. There she would wait until Sheila grew up. Where are these two paths taking us? Two very different paths, two very different characters. Hope you're seeing that. They're very different characters. Where are they leading? Well, a dead end. Personally, this is a dead end for Judah. His soul has gone dark and he is unfeeling. He can't tell his own sons the reason for their own death. He is ruled by his passions. He treats women poorly and his sons have taken after him. His son's fate speaks a warning to Judah and to us all. It does seem harsh, this kind of death penalty that God has issued here. We might say, I'm glad doesn't, God doesn't do it today. And he might. He does discipline with this means his own children at times. But even when he doesn't, it's only because he's storing up wrath on the day of judgment that will make these two strikes look cute. That is, if you're outside of Christ and God hasn't struck you dead, it's because he's storing up wrath for the day of judgment when he will do good on his justice against all of your sin. In a way that will make these strikes look insignificant. We get little foretastes of his coming judgment across the Bible. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the flood in Noah's day. Terrifying acts of great judgment. And here, instances of individual judgment. Be warned then. The one who alone is able to make life is himself able and unafraid and willing to take it. And if that scares you out of your sin into repentance and to Christ, then praise God for that. That's a legitimate thing to run to Jesus from. Run to him. But run from judgment. Because it's coming. It's a dead end for Judah personally, and it, it portends a dead end for all of us outside of Christ. It's also a dead end for the people of God. On the page of the story, it would be through Judah that the Messiah King would come, a son of Eve to turn back the curse and set all things right. The first reader would know this, yet Judah is satisfied to see his own, his own line kind of dwindle here. The promises are small in his vision. If he does not care, who is there to see the matter through? How will this end? And it's at this point that the story takes a surprising turn. It takes two surprising turns that I want to show you, actually. Two surprising turns, verses 12 through 26. There's actually many surprises here, aren't there? And in, in the one we might be most surprised by it first is Judah's turn to a prostitute. Um, he was predictable enough in this kind of repeated sexual deviancy, though apparently she could, uh, Tamar could predict this is what would happen. So I'm not going to call that a surprise. We've also come to expect some pretty incredible sin from our patriarchs in the story. So I'm going to say that his turn to a prostitute is not a surprise, or at least not the surprises I want to draw our attention to. However, there are two turns in this section that are very surprising. The first turn is bold. The first turn is bold. 
and it's made in desperation, but it's bold and it's Tamar's act of prostitution. They could get her killed and she knew that full well. She was smart in how she did this. It could cost her her life. It was not done as one of many options. It was not done from a desire for sensual anything. I'm not saying it was without sin. I don't think I'm prepared to do that. But let's slow down and put ourselves in her shoes or in the garments of her widowhood, rather. The story does seem to put the sympathy on her side. By way of contrast, these two characters, Judah really does come out really bad. And I think a case can be made that is the strongest to see the sympathy with Tamar. Let's look at what she did and why she did it. First, what did she do? Verses 12 through 19 give us the story. She knew that Judah was headed up uh, after his own wife died. He was consoled. He was comforted. He went up to the sheep shearers. This was a kind of um, uh, a festival time. He would go and be with the guys and be in town, be where the action was. He and his friend Hira would go out. Hira the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance of Anayim which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. She knows what's going on. Shelah's getting older. Judah's either forgotten because he doesn't care or he never meant to give him to her at all. And she's in a desperate situation. She is growing up. He has grown up. She gets this from some type of an anonymous source and she moves into action Why does she do it? She did it from desperation as a widow. Her husband died. Onan used her and neglected her, and now he's dead. Her father-in-law, Judah, lied to her and neglected her. She did this from personal desperation, we could say. But there's another reason that is less on the surface. It's less on the surface. This is a Canaanite woman. Who else married Canaanite women? Esau did. How did it go for him and his people? Assimilation into the Canaanite culture and the people. That's how it goes. That's what we expect. Esau's family walks off the page of the Bible and the page of history and they are forgotten. What else do we see here? A Canaanite woman who does not return to her pagan people for her future as would be well expected. A Canaanite woman identifying with Judah and his people for her future. As, as dim as that looked from her position, she would have known we would understand about the promises. She would know he was an Israelite. He did not come from her people. A Canaanite woman she was, patiently seeking an heir for her dead husband, who was the firstborn of Judah, an Israelite. Tamar committed her act, it seems to me, from desperation, but also from a basic, even if not fully informed, a basic identification with the people and with the promise. 
She sees herself not essentially as her father's daughter and a Canaanite, but as the widow of Ur, the son of Judah. And apparently for her, there's no going back. She had many years to go back. There were pagan patterns of handling her own situation that she did not pursue. Even if there was a better path or a patient path or a more faith-filled path than the one that she took. I mean to point out her desperate situation, which is very different than Judah's situation. And I mean to point out what I believe to be, and I think we can say is a basic identification with his people, Judah's people, better than Judah's own identification with them which is what we're to see over and against her Canaanite identification. From a bit of altitude in the story, in seeing this pattern of this type of woman saving the day, I'm inclined to say she didn't fully know what she is doing, but that she's not exactly passive as an actor either, merely acting on self-interest, merely without identification with the promise and the people. The first Israelite readers would read this in this way and see how despicable Judah was, their patriarch forefather. And they would see a heroine of sorts in Tamar. And they would also find a template for the kind of thing that the Lord would do over and over again in her own history. They would meet Rahab shortly. And there would be other women with suspicious situations and marital arrangements and histories who make their way into special lists, which we'll see. There's another surprising turn in this section. We've seen Tamar's turn to prostitution as a solution to her desperate problem. Now we see Judah's turn. Not Judas turned to a prostitute. Remember, that's not terribly surprising. But a different kind of turn. You remember where we left off? Tamar, in the course of a transaction with father-in-law, required his signet and his cord and his, and his staff. And when it was found out that she was pregnant, He demands, in outrage, her life. It was not his place to do that. Uh, Even that punishment, that specific punishment that he called for, her burning for that sin, uh, would not be carried out in this kind of unilateral sort of one man calls it way. And that was not the punishment for that specific Sin. It may have been that it was a mere outburst of revulsion as a kind of outrage. In any case, she has his identifying markers. She was not there to receive the goat that he sent, the third goat in the story of Genesis that functions in the context of deception. And one we only saw a chapter ago. But she has his identifying markers. And what will he say? What will he do? Deception of goat and signs of identification. What is going on through Judah's mind? All of these have a kind of an echo in his own memory. 
How will it go for Tamar? How will Judah answer? Will he deny it and condemn her? Will he ignore it and condemn her? Will he admit it and condemn her? Verse 26. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. And so on Judah's lips, Moses is putting the message of the chapter. Hear that when you hear the name Tamar. Hear that when you hear the name Tamar. Judah makes a turn to God. And Judah interprets Tamar's part to us. Judah not only clears her, he not only clears her of guilt and and puts the whole thing away, he clears her of guilt and then he calls her righteous, at least more righteous than I. I may want to stop short of saying her her act was holy and only righteous. There are other ways to trust God in a hard situation and the Joseph story will show us that. But we can say she was the more righteous character in this story and that God has sympathy with her. The Lord has not, was not done with Abraham and he was not done with Isaac and he was not done with Jacob and neither was he done with Judah. And neither is he done with Judah. So friend, if the Lord hasn't struck you down, there is time to call it as it is and there's time to make a turn. In the New Testament, we call this repentance and faith. Acknowledging the truth about our sin before God, that he's right. He is holy and he is just and we are dark and sinful and that's what we bring to the table. If all of our thoughts were laid bare in a moment, none of us could stand and none of us will stand before God when we meet him. If that's all we bring, turning in faith to God to say, I'm with you. I agree with your word about my sin. And I thank you and receive the forgiveness that I don't deserve that you've provided through your, the blood of your son, Jesus. And that can be yours. God takes away our sin as far as the East is from the West. It, Judah doesn't have the whole story. We have the whole story. We're in a much better position here. And we know, and I can say to you, that when you turn from your sin in faith to the Lord Jesus, that because of his work on the cross, your guilt, if it's as bad or worse than this, in terms of your acts of sin, whatever it is, all the way down, every thought, all of that can be forgiven. And God has made sure that it can be forgiven by punishing it in the Lord Jesus who suffered on the cross for us. And that is great, great news. And we get a little hint of that great news in the response that God has elicited from and shepherded Judah to with this confrontation, this twisted story and a confrontation with the truth to which he's responded, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Sheila, I have been dishonest. And Judah will grow, as we'll see before the story of Genesis is done. Friends, we'll need a better savior than Judah. He can't be the one. We'll need a savior that keeps his integrity. We'll need a savior that doesn't follow his, uh, follow human sexual urges 
into sin. We'll need a savior who is honest. We'll need a savior for whom God does not get small or the promises do not shrink. We need a savior whose whose life and conduct will not multiply the judgment of God as Judah's life and conduct multiplied the judgment of God in the life of his family. We'll need a savior whose life and conduct multiplies the blessing of God. And as we stop right here in the story in chapter 38, we can ask ourselves, could it be Joseph who was just hauled away? This story makes a beautiful contrast with some of the things that we're going to see. Joseph is a different kind of character. And yet for those of us who sit here as we all do on this side of the cross and the story, we know that it's not Joseph, which leads to our last section, one great light, verses 27 through 30. We've had two dark paths and we've had two surprising turns and now we've got one great light. 20 years of comfortless, difficult, dreadful darkness punctuated by some light. Now the birth of two children, verse 27. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first, the firstborn. But as he drew back his hand, behold, the brother came out. And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name shall be called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. And here we should know what's coming. And that is God's at work. We have a birth of another couple twins and we've got something going on with the first and the second here. And the first comes out, it's considered the firstborn, but the second, Perez, will have prominence. Hear these words from Matthew chapter one. As we think about this whole chapter, listen to how, listen to how this chapter we've just heard and even this birth fill out with color and depth and even some shades of darkness. This otherwise sometimes bare and boring genealogy that opens up the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, after which we're already ready to skip to some of the story parts of the genealogy, but let's not do that. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amidadab, and Amidadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Into a world of darkness, and through a world of darkness, Jesus comes. And he has come in such a way as to welcome to himself not only men and women, but women in suspect marriages and situations like several of these were found. His own early mother would have been held in suspicion on account of her unexpected pregnancy. Could it be that the writer has put these names in here in order to set us up to see 
and receive Mary as blessed. And it is here so that we might see that men and women come to the Savior from among the nations, a Canaanite woman, a Canaanite woman, a Hittite woman, and a Moabite woman make the list. Which is why Simeon, a priest, would say, and if you will, write this headline across the sky and in our feeds when he meets the Lord Jesus as a baby. Quoting from scriptures, he says in Luke 2.32, here is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And we saw just a flicker in the birth of Perez. Jesus, friends, is no taker. He does not turn aside and he did no wicked thing. Yet the father struck him down, not for his sins, but for ours. So that the headline of history is not sin and darkness and death, but ultimately righteousness and life and light. And your name can be in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story, even though this story comes to us as it does with all of its darkness and confusion and sadness. We thank you that you don't turn your head or hide from the sad things in our life or even the gross and dark sins in which we have participated. But we give you thanks that you save sinners of every kind and you have gone out of your way to make sure that we know that you save people like us. And Father, we thank you that you're not only saving individuals, but that you are making an entirely new people and that you have given us your spirit and you've made us a new humanity and you have called together your church as a way of showing the world the light, not only because the light has come in Jesus, but the light is known from Jesus in his people. And so as we gather this morning and as we labor, Father, to walk with you in life and in integrity We have the way of showing the whole world that we don't have to stay in our sin and that there is freedom from the darkness inside which so many live and walk even right now. Within blocks, Father, there may be somebody who wants to take their life from the sins that have been committed against them and the shame they feel or the sins that they have committed and the shame that they feel. And Father, I pray that through their encounters with our church and our people, that they may know that there is freedom and that there is life and that there is light in a dark world. And so, Father, we are the Gentiles that you have brought to yourself and that whose light, to whom you have shown your light, and we're the ones you're using to shine light in a dark place. We thank you that we know it firsthand, and we pray that we'd shine it all the brighter. In Jesus' name, amen.